Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And uh, we want to make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word and is able to put their eyes on Scripture. Um, We are continuing... Uh, our series through Philippians, and uh, we'll be in Philippians through the end of the year. And uh, the focus of this series is uh, the pursuit of being joyful. And it, not just joyful, but literally full of joy. And as I've said before, and I just want to keep reminding you, uh, this is full of joy, not full of happiness. Happiness is good, but it's also fleeting. There's a lot of circumstances that we face, and you may actually even be facing right now where you're going, I'm struggling to be happy. Happiness is not our concern. Joy is. And the reason for that is because we want you to be equipped with the ability to act in joy in all seasons of your life. What a gift. And as we think about this very thing, I want to ask you a question and just have you ponder this this morning. I want you to think of a, it's not as much of a question as just a situation. I want you to think of a profound moment in your life that forever altered your future. A profound moment at some point in the past that you can look at now and go, this continues to impact me even today. The reality is every one of us sitting in this room could identify at least a handful of those. There's not even just one per se. We could look at struggles. As defining moments in our life that forever changed who we are today. We can look at joys that we've experienced in this world and in this life that have forever changed who we are today. Now, notoriously, when I ask this question, there's always someone who is the sarcastic one. I asked the same question in a youth group setting once, and I had some students raise their hand They were like, I think the most impactful thing that's forever altered my future was when I was born. I'm like, okay. Outside of that, we're talking birth on. What has impacted your life? Okay. What has brought transformation in you? And the reason I ask this is because those things that we look at in our lives that have made us who we are today 
are still making you who you are becoming. And those profound moments that we see as pivotal in our life ultimately impact what motivates us day in and day out as followers of Jesus. And so we're going to go to Philippians 2, and my prayer is that you will recognize what the primary motivation for us as the church has to be if we're going to seek to live lives that are full of joy in every season. So let's pray, and then we're going to go to God's Word, and we're going to unpack this text more this morning. Father, thank you for your love for us that you have shown us in Jesus. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see not only those profound happenings of our lifetime that have made us who we are today, but God, that you would help us to see the most impactful truth for the church today. Father, I pray that you would unite us under this and that we would leave here today motivated to be more and more like Jesus. And in all of this, Lord, that you would be the object of all glory and honor and praise today. And not only today, but every day thereafter. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So Philippians chapter 2, and what we have discovered uh, that is important for us to, uh, in reading and studying the book of Philippians, is that Paul is writing to the church. Everyone say the church. And this is important because it's really easy for us to divert who this is focused on, especially, this is what I found, especially if we don't like what it's saying to us. Oh, that's not for me. I'm good. And, or maybe you're sitting there and you hear something and your first reaction is to, uh, I elbow your spouse or your kid like, dad, you're listening. Are you listening to Pastor Matt? No, 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 no. This is for everybody. It's for everybody. In fact, I want to hear you all say that. So I'm going to count to three and I want you to go, everybody, because I think it'll be fun. Okay? All right, let's try this. All right, one, two, three. That was fun. I like that. That's good. And that's the truth, okay? This text is written for the church as a whole. Those of you who choose to follow Jesus, and there's application in here, even for those of you who are here and you go, I'm not really sure where I'm at. And can I just say, if that's you today, thank you for being here. You are a gift in being here, and our prayer is that we would be a gift to you. As the church. But here's what Paul is writing to the church here in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, when it comes to this text, it's uh, it's interesting that we have conditions to the challenge. 
And the challenge I'm going to read here in a minute. But here's the conditions. So if there is, and you could, we could ask this question about the church. Are any of these things true? Is there any encouragement in Christ? Has there been anyone in the room who's been encouraged by the work of Jesus? Amen, right? Is there any comfort from love? Now, the scope of this is, this is not... That Paul's not writing about the love of just other people because he says in a minute that you're to complete his joy having the same love. So the application's coming later. This is comfort from love. Whose love? This is, this is the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you, has anyone in here been comforted by the reminder that God loved you so much that he sent his son while you were still sinners? Amen, right? There's any comfort in love. And then it says, if there's any participation in the spirit. Now, this word participation is the word koinonia, which some of you may recognize. And koinonia is a biblical word for fellowship or partnership together. If there is any partnership in the spirit of God, which here's the promise, church, for those who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, scripture says that the Spirit indwells them. And in fact, Jesus actually told his disciples that it was better for him to depart because if he departed, the, the helper would come to them. And Romans 8 identifies that it's the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead that dwells in the life of the believer. So if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection or sympathy, what is that? If you have been so moved by the reminder of the Gospel that you are motivated into a gentleness and a sympathy for those who are burdened, if any of these things are true, that's the conditions. The challenge comes next. If any of this is true, complete my joy. And this is Paul speaking to the church at Philippi here. Complete my joy by, one, being of the same mind. There's unity. Everyone say unity. Being of the same mind, having the same love. Now understand here, it doesn't say that they're to love the same things. There's a big difference between unity and uniformity. We're not going for uniformity in the church. In fact, the very nature of how God established the church is so unique because every one of you is different. And in fact, Scripture says that the diverse giftings of the church is what makes the church the church. We don't want a bunch of feet in the church. We don't want a bunch of ears in the church. We don't want uniformity. What we want is unity across diversity of people. So being of the same love is recognizing that together the number one love for us as the church is Jesus. It's not loving the same things, okay? You don't have to. You, I really enjoy hunting. It was a good weekend. But that doesn't mean you have to enjoy or love hunting to be a part of the body of Christ. What matters is ultimately what we're going to celebrate later when we take communion. It is what has united us together in Jesus. 
being of the same love, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, that's a bold task, isn't it? To look at the culture and look at the diversity amongst even just the people sitting here. The people who are joining us online right now. There's a diversity. How in the world do we pursue being so unified that people would look at and say they are of one mind? Here, here is how. I'm going to give you four of these today. If we are pursuing a joyful life, the gospel motivates who we are and what we do. Being of one mind and one framework goes right back to the conditions of Paul's challenge. If you have been encouraged in any way, comforted in any way, participated in any way in the good news that there is salvation in Jesus, that becomes the one mind that motivates everything we do, church. It has to. Why? Because here's what happens. And this happens every week. In churches around the world. Primarily, I'm going to say churches in the Western world, in our country. Churches gather, and it is about personal ideas of what church is. Well, I like it this way, and I like things this way. And, and there are, family, there have been full-on church splits over the color of the carpet. That happens! That's not some foreign entity. Okay? That is not being of the same mind. None of that matters. Guaranteed. Here's a guaranteed truth. When you get to heaven someday, Jesus is not going to ask you, why in the world did you pick tan carpet? He will not say that. But I guarantee you he will call you into accountability about that which your mind was fixated on most. The gospel, if we're going to be of one mind, as Paul challenges the church at Philippi, and unified under one focal point, it's the gospel. It's the good news that there is salvation in no one else. It's in Jesus. Let's read this next couple of verses. Because these are really challenging too. Whew. Do nothing. Everyone say nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I'm going to read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is one of those truths that becomes the most challenging for me in this season when I sit down and try to teach my kids about this. Because when I sit down and try to teach my kids about this at Ages 8, 6, and 3, I realize just how horrible I am at it. There isn't, truth moment, there isn't a single one of you in here that doesn't struggle with selfishness and pride. They are fabrics of our fleshly selves. 
It's, it's why when, when we come to this and recognize the challenge, you are not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, personal gain, but you're to count other people more significant than yourselves. When we read that, it reveals so clearly our need for a savior. It reveals so evidently our need for the gospel. Because just that one verse, and we could leave here and be challenged by this all week. To say in every setting of every part of your day, you are to prioritize the care of others over yourself. Now, that doesn't mean, I want to preface something, that doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. I know people like this, who they focus so much on taking care of others that they have hardly any relationship with the Lord. Because their focus and their identity even becomes about pleasing or serving other people. And that's making something God has called us to a good thing into a not so good thing. And we can in fact make serving other people an idol. We don't serve other people. We're not called to serve other people because it benefits us. We're called to serve other people in light of the gospel we have been given in Jesus. That is, in recognition of what Jesus has already done for us, it propels us to then live like Jesus lived. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also, there's both. You look out for yourself, but also the interests of others. Here's application number two. If we are pursuing a joyful life, serving others becomes priority over serving self. Those of you who are married, you want a really quick way to improve your marriage relationship. Here it is. Seek to do, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. That's biblical. What does that mean? It means when I wake up in the morning, my priority is to do whatever I can to serve and love my wife. And for her... What does that mean? It means when she wakes up, she does whatever she can to love and serve me as her husband. And guess what? When both of you are striving to serve the other one and outdo the other one in serving and loving them, you are destined for a fantastic relationship. Here's the kicker. That is not just to be applied to marriage. It is to be applied in the relational aspects of church family life. That is, when we see one another, we're to seek to outdo each other in showing love and care and honor for the other one. I want you to picture for a minute a group of diverse people that commit themselves just to that goal because of what has been done for them in Christ. And imagine how countercultural that is Because culture says, well, you know, that person, they hold a different political viewpoint than you. You can't possibly spend time with them. Eh, Wrong. Wrong. Not true. Why? Because anything to do on earth here is not what unifies us. And I feel like that has become really evident in the last several years. What should unify us? The gospel of Jesus, church. That is what binds us together. 
Another truth moment in this. I want you to think about what relationships are eternal in this room. I'm going to tell you something that may be challenging, but you need to hear it. In eternity, there is not the relationships, earthly relationships of mother and father and son and daughter. What do I mean by that? I mean that in Christ, we are all on the same playing field. In Christ, theologically, every one of us receives the promise of being an heir with Christ. Every single one of us in Christ is at the same level. What is that level? It's the level of identifying I am a sinner who cannot be saved apart from some miraculous work outside of myself. And that work is Jesus. The eternal relationship family is brother and sister in Christ. And that's a powerful truth for us to recognize that in my parenting, my number one job is not to make my child a great child to me. My number one responsibility is to expose them to Jesus and pray that one day we would be brothers and sisters in Christ. It means that with my, with my parents and extended family, my number one responsibility is not to simply always act like a son or a son-in-law. My number one prayer and responsibility is to become in the kind of relationship where Jesus is at the center. And the Christ-like accountability is the, is the focus. Serving others becomes a priority across the board. Now, this next section is one of the most theologically rich descriptions of Jesus. And it starts out with another challenge, another command, as it were. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's a challenge, heavy challenge for you. Have this mind amongst yourselves. What mind? The one that's yours in Christ. The one that's rooted in the gospel. And here's the description. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's several questions anytime... I read this passage with a group of people. There's several questions, but the first thing we need to identify here, church, is in verse 6, Jesus being in the form of God. This is not that Jesus was like God. This was not that Jesus was a godly man. No, 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 no. Jesus himself is God. We believe here at the Evangelical Free Church in Canton, we believe that God is one being in three persons. Now, I will be the first to admit to you that the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most challenging to wrap our human brains around. And the reason we believe this to be true is it's because who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And I like it this way because it reminds me every time I come to this that he is God and I am not. 
in the scope of understanding God's full nature, I will never fully comprehend that. And I am content with that. And so when we recognize this, it brings a whole new power to this fact that he was literally in the form of God. He was God. John 1, 1 reemphasizes this again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In fact, there's another passage in John chapter 17. If you've never read that, John 17, there's your homework for the week. I want you to read John 17. And John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. When he's in the garden, it's before he is arrested. And he makes this statement in the midst of John 17. And a lot of people miss it. Jesus is praying. These are the words of Christ. And he says, Father, return to me the glory I once had with you before the world began. And the first time I actually stopped and recognized that, it gave me chills. Because it's one of the most profound evidences for two things. One, the pre-existence of Christ. Which is the fact that Jesus was present in the beginning. Jesus is not a created entity, church. He was present in the beginning. In fact, John 1 goes on to say, All things were created through Him, and without Him nothing was created. But the second thing it emphasizes is that Reality of what Jesus gave up when he came to earth. And he's crying out to the Father, Father, return to me the glory I once had with you before the world began. And that moves right into the next part of this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Jesus did not wield his deity to get to people. There's no place in the text of scripture where jesus just full out uses his deity as a reason that someone should just obey instead he very clearly communicates i'm here to do the will of him who sent me i'm here to do my father's will and then he made several statements that caused people caused the pharisees in particular to be like this guy needs to die because they went who who has the authority to forgive sins but God? Exactly. Right? Jesus does. Because he is God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now, when I come to that, many people will ask, what did he empty himself of? And there can be controversy around that. We cannot say that he emptied himself of being God, for then we would encounter other problems in Scripture. Like for say, how could he who is not God forgive sins? That's a valid question. Instead, in looking at this next portion of the text, it seems really logical to understand that this emptying coincided with him taking on the form of a servant. Literally, he gave up a crown of glory And emptied himself, becoming a human being. Christ incarnate on the earth. He literally emptied himself into humanity. And he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's 
the amazing truth when we're talking about being full of joy. Jesus saw it as a joy to walk and live in obedience to the Father unto death. And he, this is identified in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where the challenge is, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was a joy. Here's the broader application, church. If we're pursuing a joyful life, Jesus becomes the standard over anything else. When we ask the question, what should our life look like? Look at Jesus. Look at how he loved Look at how he spoke. Now, we have to be careful here because here's why. What we like to do in our humanness is we like to take the aspects of Jesus' character that we like and put him in our box. We like to make a Jesus in our image. And broader culture is doing that at a rapid rate. And so... The most common statement that you'll hear is, well, you just need to love like Jesus loved. That is true, but Jesus also spoke hard truth. He also didn't contradict the will of his father. And Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we cannot separate pieces of Jesus' character and make that the sole focus of our lives. You're, you're not just called to imitate the love of Christ. You're called to imitate Christ. And that's all-encompassing. Well, what does that mean? Well, John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And he says, in the same way that I've loved you, you're to love each other. It means that Jesus was faithful to bring people back to Scripture consistently. But he was also faithful to call people out. When he healed or forgave, commonly his response was, go and sin no more. If that's not a challenge, I don't know what is. So our calling as we become more like Jesus comes back to our main series idea, which is fullness of joy is found in glorifying God. How could Jesus experience such joy and such challenge and hardship? It's because his purpose was to do the will of his father and nothing could change that you want to be a person who is filled with joy set jesus as the standard for who you are and how you live the last portion of this says therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God exalts Christ because of everything described before it. Therefore, in light of this, what is it then that exalts Christ? 
It is his not counting equality with God, a thing to be wielded. It is his faithful pursuit of the will of the Father. It is his humble servanthood while in his emptied state. In James 4, 6, he writes, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's a couple other truths here that we need to recognize theologically in these verses. Number one, there is an undercurrent at times in our theology and what we believe about God and about Christ where we make statements that would assume, I can't wait till Jesus is king and he he rules over everything. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus is already king. He's already been crowned. This emphasizes that. God has already exalted Christ. Christ is already seated at the right hand of God. He's already Lord. All we're waiting for is for Him to return and be Lord of the earth. And we look forward to that. But the second thing is more humbling and challenging. And it's verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's where this is challenging. Simply confessing that Jesus is Lord without believing in the name of Jesus to be saved does not save you. There are a lot of people in this world who confess the existence of God And that Jesus lived and was a good person. But they do not believe. We can know a lot of truth and still be very far from God. And there will come a day when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that is not just the people who are saved that will recognize that. Every knee and every tongue. So whether you believe in the name of Jesus today or not, there will come a day when you confess that Jesus is Lord. And why that, fear, why that causes a burden in me is because there, I'm convinced there are a lot of good church-sitting people who have not truly believed. And you go through the motions, but you have not made a decision to follow Jesus. And I want to tell you, the day that every tongue confesses and every knee bows, I want you, I want you in eternity with me. I want you to experience the joy of entering into the joy of the Father. Something we can't even fathom in our human brains. 
And that's why scripture says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that Jesus rose from the dead. That, that is, there is a transformation because of what Jesus did for me. You will be saved. And it's as simple as that. Who do you choose to serve? The last application in this. If we are pursuing a joyful life, God's glory becomes the priority. Doesn't matter what glory I want. Doesn't matter how good I do things from a cultural perspective on earth. It doesn't matter how much money I make. It doesn't matter. This does. You want the key to pursuing a life that is full of joy. Fullness of joy is found in glorifying God, church. That is when our sights are set on doing the will of our Father, just as Jesus did. Regardless of the seasons, because there's going to be good and bad. There's going to be happy and sorrowful. And here's this amazing truth. In Christ, you can have joy through all of them. Not happiness, but joy. Jesus modeled this. And verse 5, once again, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 